Welcome to the Beer Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from To Love, Honor, and Vacuum. And we are here on another week where we are going to strip everything away from marriage and sex that God did not intend and find a way to find Jesus-centered marriages. And I have on the podcast with me my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbeck. And she's awesome. She's here with me all the time. Yep. Today, we are going to take another romp through history. But before we do that, we have a special shout out to our wonderful patrons. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, we have started our Patreon account. It's been going for a couple of weeks now. And those who support us actually end up supporting Rebecca and Joanna. Yeah, because the blog is self-sustaining. We don't want to ever take any no. like pledges for the blog. We really don't. But Although we are trying to get sponsors for the podcast. So hey, so if any you want you... to sponsor the podcast, yeah, let's hit hear us up. about it. Yes. The pledges really go towards allowing Joanna to write peer-reviewed articles of our research of 20,000 women. And they are going to help me figure out how to get the message out to like kind of new groups of people. Because <laughs> frankly, there is kind of one generation who tends to be on blogs at this point and we'd like to reach the younger ones yes. as well the ones yes. who are currently engaged in getting married just at a bible college a lot of them are going to be here but for the most part they're other places and those other places take a lot of time and resources to reach so that's what we're yes. working on Yes. And so we just thank you. You can support for as little as five dollars eight dollars a month at a little bit higher amounts you can get autographed books, lots of merch. It's a lot of fun. So come on over to patreon.com slash marriage. We will put the link in the podcast description and you can help us out a lot. So thank yes. you for that. And now as we do our romp through history, we're going to look at the 1950s and 70s and we're going to bring your husband Connor onto this discussion. Yes. And before we do so, this one is, uh, we're going to need a serious trigger warning for this yes. one. Yes. You can choose, uh, first of all, even if you have like older kids who sometimes listen to the podcast, this might be one you listen to by yourself first. Yes. Because I know there are some people out there who like, who let their 17 year old listen and you, I, they might be able to handle it. We talk about some really horrible stuff. We're talking about um, pedophilia. We're talking mm-hmm. about abuse situations. It gets quite heavy and mm-hmm. emotional at a portion of it because we're really talking about the research that went on back then. Yes. Um, and just how things changed and what led into the sexual revolution. So yeah. anyway, just a warning. And now let's get started. So for the last few weeks on the blog, we have been doing this jaunt through history to see how sex was treated at different times. And today on the podcast, I thought we could do some of the weirdest, most fun, most awkward I don't know, most transformational topics, which is the 1950s to the 1980s. Yeah. Because all of that kind of influenced like purity culture and how we talk about sex today. So I brought Connor on. We did, you did a post where you took one for the team this, this week and you read the 1970 sex book, How How to Get Get More more Out of of Sex. Yeah, and that was uh, that was quite a journey. I think yes. you got a lot more out of the book than you wanted. It's like if that's <laughs> yeah. how to get more out of sex than you ever thought was possible, or something is a subtitle, and it's like maybe it shouldn't have been some of it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so we are going to be talking about that book, how mm-hmm. to get more out of sex than you bargained for, <laughs> <laughs> and how and how some of the stuff that that book said led into why the early Christian sex books said things the way they did. Mm -hmm. Because I definitely have some theories on how we got from point A to point B. Right. Uh, But let's back up 
even further than that. And let's go into the Kinsey Report from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. In fact, maybe we should back up even more and just lay the stage for the Kinsey Report. So a little jaunt through history here. So if you think about it, you know, Victorian times, things were really repressed. Mm-hmm. In the early 1900s, you had the First World War where women were outside the house <laughs> working. You had the Roaring Twenties where there was actually quite a lot of salacious behavior that's very good yes and because i read the great gatsby i know those words okay (laughs) does everybody hate the great gatsby as much as i did like why did they i hated the great gatsby i haven't seen it so my opinion (laughs) (laughs) anyway connor's a book nerd just so everyone knows yeah he actually is um connor are the readers in the family nobody else reads fiction we read fiction but anyway so great gatsby 1920s and then you bring in prohibition things get clamped down during the depression you have world war ii and again women are out of the house Mm -hmm. and then the 1950s hit and of course during the 1940s you also had a lot of technological advances with the war and so in the middle of all this social upheaval technological upheaval the kinsey report is published Mm-hmm. And I don't think people today understand how transformational that was. So would you guys, who are the psychology majors, like to explain what the Kinsey Report was? The Kinsey Report was a piece of research put together by a man named Alfred Kinsey and his research team, where what he did is he took a look, uh, an in-depth look, at a lot of individual self-reports of sexual behavior across the country to see just how prevalent certain things like uh, homosexuality, oral sex, a lot of taboos and things that people didn't talk about as lo- along with just regular sexual topics. And he put together this massive report detailing all of these stories and all of these histories of these people and put it out there to show, okay, so... We talk about things this way. Here's what's actually happening in households. Was That was the intention behind the piece of research. Yeah, what was it called? Like human sexual behavior in the human... Uh, something like the sexual behavior of men. Uh, and then he later released a report that was about the sexual uh, behavior of women. What I think is interesting to note is, like we said, with the Victorian times and everything, what I really notice is that we're coming into this from a long period of history where private lives were supposed to be very private. (laughs) But also, they were expected to be cookie cutter. Like, they were expected to fit within certain societal norms, but also you were never supposed to talk about it. So how did you know if you fit the norms? (laughs) So, yeah, so, so what that means is that here are all the norms going on and no one can talk about... Is this what's happening? Is this what's healthy? You know, where are we seeing problems with this? You just keep quiet about it. Just stick to the traditional. And the Kinsey report ended up being intensely controversial. And there are a lot of people on both sides of the Kinsey report, both back then and even today, you have people arguing on both sides of it. Because I think one of the reasons it sparked so much controversy was you know, whether you agree with his research or his methods, what he did is he took what was happening in the private sphere in the household and he made it public. That was his intention. Here's what is happening in our private lives. Now everyone knows. And what happened is from there, we were no longer able to just not talk about it. And I think that's a lot of what happened for the sexual liberation movement. And 
One thing that I actually think was a very vital thing, a very important thing to happen, was the fact that people could now talk about this. If it mm -hmm. weren't for the Kinsey report, I think you might still be talking about vacuuming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. There were a lot of issues that people took specifically with his methodology. And there were a lot of issues that people took with the morality behind the research and the impact of the research on society. You have kind of those two, on the one hand, attacks and on the other hand, two lines of praise. So you had a lot of people saying, wow, this is great, you know, that we can talk about this. And this is, he's pioneering sex research. No one has really tried to formalize the science of, you know, researching sexuality before. And this is a huge step forward. And then you had a lot of other people saying, well, we think this is an outrage. It's going to do horrible things to our kids. It's going to be like, you know, people were blaming it for rising divorce rates. People were blaming it for rising deviancy, as they called it, in all sorts of different fields. And so I think partially from an academic standpoint and partially from a how can we dismantle the Kinsey report because we disagree with it morally, you had a lot of people criticizing the methods. And so I looked into the methods and I looked at the critiques and what I can say is when I look at it, I am in the camp now that it was not super tight, methodologically speaking. And there were also some serious moral issues with it. This is coming at a time when they also did that famous experiment, remember, where they had they had people zap people. Milgram's experiment? Yeah, mm -hmm. Milgram. Yeah, the like Arcadian it, study. Yeah, mm -hmm. let's put it this way. Uh, there wasn't a uh, ethics board for psychological studies that this in the same way in the mm -hmm. early, in, like in this time, actually because of experiments like the Milgram experiment, the Stanford prison experiment, we have ethics committees now. Yeah, and um, and the Kinsey. And the Kinsey are part of yeah, There's, there's a lot of them. Yeah. There is, yeah. Let's put it this way. There is no shortage of examples of why we now have ethical yeah. councils. Yeah. Um, so let's just go right ahead and talk about what the genuine, legitimate complaints about his methods were. And that was, as I said, he was going around and he was interviewing people, getting their histories about very private things that they may not have... Uh, ever disclosed to other people before. One of the big complaints was his sampling method. He took a lot of histories from people who were in prison for their behaviors, and he took a lot of histories from specifically homosexual samples and a lot of seemingly very specific places. And so there were genuine concerns about a sampling bias. In fact, uh, even Abraham Maslow, who uh, anyone in psychology will recognize as being a very influential figure. <laughs> anyone screamed. who's read The Great Sex Rescue will remember talking about mm -hmm. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Very yes. Briefly, I think. <laughs> he, he went in and screened the samples for bias before the report came out and said, yeah, no, this is not representative of the general population. Now, to put that with a grain of salt, Abraham Maslow has also been critiqued largely for <laughs> not being incredibly scientifically rigorous. But... Those were some genuine complaints that people had with the research. And to put that into context, the reason people were upset is because he was making things that were considered deviant at the time, and maybe even still today, sound a lot more widespread than they were. Mm -hmm. He was. People were saying, well, he's making it sound like homosexuality is this super common thing that so many people are doing, but he was largely just asking homosexuals and people in prison. So that was the complaint that a lot of people were making. Yeah, and now, remember that homosexuality was so much more taboo in the 1950s than it was today, which yeah. obviously people listening already know, but like yeah. Yeah. that that was something which people would have been quite offended by back then. Oral yeah. sex was 
still illegal. Oral sex is still illegal for Pete's sake. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. What happened from there is then some of his predecessors in the Kinsey Institute went back and they went back through the data and they uh, took out the samples that people were having issue with and they ran the numbers. And what they actually found was a lot of the numbers really didn't change very much. So they said... No, there there wasn't an original issue with the reporting bias, uh, with the sampling bias. But even to this day, what I think is a genuine critique that people still make is there's still the self-selection bias because, again, this is a time when people could not talk about their sex lives mm-hmm. and people express concerns that there may be certain kinds of people who are more likely to go on the record mm-hmm. about what they're doing than others and if people are more likely to go on record and have their story be stated Mm -hmm. if they are not in the traditional vanilla package then you you have a sampling bias there again right a lot of people also took issue with some of the morality of what he did again we talked about the milgram experiments the stanford prison experiments one of the big issues that a lot of people have and still have is he took histories from a number of pedophiles and sexual offenders along with the other people in his sample. And he would get these detailed histories from them and did not ever report them to the police. And Mm -hmm. the Institute has still to this day kept all of the records sealed so that no one can look back. And I mean, that's already problematic, but especially when they passed off some of their findings about the sexuality of little boys that they'd gotten from pedophiles. And they made it sound like that came from a number of different sources when actually so many of those came from just one incredibly prolific pedophile. I'm actually going to stop... I, you know, I really had to read into this and dig into this and it got, I reached a point where I realized I had to stop, actually cried a little bit. Just the amount of detail that he went into and took from this man and from a few others like him and then just put into this report and never reported. And Uh his, his thought was he was balancing the importance of the scientific data with the likelihood of them repeating again. But after reading some of the stuff in the report, it was just... Uh, too much for me to really talk about here, yeah. especially as a father with a little boy. Yeah. And he had four kids, or I, I believe around four yeah. kids himself. And so it's just... And that's and that's the issue is with the Kinsey Report, one of the big concerns we have from an ethical standpoint is that the desire to reduce shame and increase conversation was done at the expense of sexual abuse victims. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is It was like, well, you might be getting, you know, abused, but at least we can talk about sex now it's like Mm -hmm. um no that's not a good handoff uh we should always be shaming abusers and rapists and making them face the consequences of their actions yeah and i know that today if 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 someone finds out about a crime like you have to report it Yeah. yeah some other stuff that went on with that that was more what we would definitely acknowledge now as just not being appropriate was that as was reported in both of his biographies by two different sources who were close to him and close to the people in the institute uh he would experiment and also 
encourage his fellow researchers to experiment in sexual acts with each other in the laboratory for the purposes of observation is at least what was reported. And there are people who comment on, you know, him having sick perverted motives in doing this and whatnot, but it doesn't matter whether he really was just passionate about the science and about the observation or if there was more at work there. What's important is that we recognize now that that is in no way an acceptable or what we would consider consensual way no. to to go about any kind of sexual relation. You can't say, hey, I want you two to do some stuff to each other while we film it and watch. Yeah. And no, not he, okay. And he did not going to happen. Yeah. Not okay. So was he writing about children's sexuality based on the report of pedophiles? Is that what you're saying? Yes, I think I can I think I can get through this what I will say is he was right he even went so far as to take uh stopwatch timers of people uh including this pedophile and people who he had encouraged to pull out a stopwatch if they saw a child masturbating or an adult doing anything with a child who encouraged them to take out a stopwatch and time how long it took for that child to reach climax if they did and then he reported on that you know to make the argument that children are sexual right from and this is why we need to be so careful in how we talk about kids and i know people you know like gotten some pushback before and talking about how authors in the current christian sphere talk about kids being sexual we just need to say it like shanti felden and for women for women only said that a four-year-old has a male male brain. brain And describes a four-year-old getting aroused by the same thing yeah. that men do. She's doing what the Kinsey report did. Yeah, like mm-hmm. we just... we cannot sexualize children because it legitimizes pedophilia. Yeah, and and I think that this is just something that's so in the culture because of things like the Kinsey report that people like Shanti probably don't even realize they're doing it. Yeah, mm-hmm. but once you realize you're doing it, you need to stop. Yeah. You need to retract and put public apologies out there because what happens is we normalize things that aren't supposed to be normal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? We normalize thinking of children as sexual beings. We normalize thinking of sexuality as something that, you know, well, kids have have sexuality the same way that adults do. No, they no, don't. No, they don't. Yeah. No, yeah. and and to imply or to act as if they do or to speak as if they do is wrong and is evil mm-hmm. and can mm-hmm. cause victims yeah. um where mm-hmm. they didn't need to be any. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, that was heavy. Yes. But yeah. the and the Kinsey report was very ugly, but this was monumentally culture forming in the yeah. 1950s. You know, it's it's easy to see where someone could get lost in that and what's uh, what's okay to go into and what isn't because at that time pretty much everything was unacceptable. Again, oral <laughs> sex was illegal. Yeah. Oral sex so, was illegal and even so, among married couples. And so all the stuff about pedophilia was just one of the barriers that was morally abhorrent at the time yeah. that he was taking down. There was a lot of other stuff that would have been regarded very much the same way that we now look at and go, well, the way that we looked at that in the past was ridiculous. Yeah. The child thing, I am glad that as a society, I do not think we openly, like on the surface, Mm -hmm. have budged on that issue at all. And in fact, I I see a lot of places in progressivism where people are really focusing on this is not okay. You know, here's what grooming looks like here. And it's the same with a lot of these, with a lot of these horrible 
studies that mm-hmm. were done earlier, like the Stanford Prison Experiment, the Milgram Experiment. And if you guys don't know what those are, that's not for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Google them. They're super interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The Milgram Experiment, just it's the Nazi one where they were yeah. where they were trying to see if you gave directions, would people hurt someone else? And yeah, and they, they found that, uh, like, of, <laughs> of their study, I think it was almost every single one delivered what they believed were electric shocks to the extent that they would actually kill someone to the point that they yeah. stopped yeah. hearing screams, which were false, obviously. Yeah, but, what was unethical wasn't that people were actually being no. electrocuted, but the psychological trauma of these people thinking that yeah. they had killed someone yeah. or that they, they would kill to. someone they if they were given the Yeah, yeah and there were serious psychological health effects. But anyway, so the, all these studies, they had horrible, horrible effects in a lot of areas, but they also had these groundbreaking, world-changing results. Like the Milgram experiment, it really opened our eyes to realize, no, like some of these Nazi officials who said, I was following orders, they legitimately may Mm -hmm. have been following orders. Humans are capable of doing a lot of horrible stuff when they have a bad teacher or a bad um, figure. And that that is a lot of why we have a lot Mm -hmm. of the understanding of consent with power. Mm-hmm. When it comes to sexual abuse, it's actually because of studies like the Stanford Prison Experiment, the Milford, the Milgram Experiment. Like they led to some good things. Yeah, we just don't do that. We don't do that anymore. So then, in so, so you got the Kinsey Report in the fifties, and then in yeah. the sixties, you have tremendous social upheaval, much of which was good, mm-hmm. some of which was not. <laughs> there was a lot of LSD. It was, a, there was very, <laughs> you know, I mean, racial equality, good. Yeah. <laughs> LSD, bad. So good. Or like from the but book that I wrote Charles the post Manson, on. Let's here's how it. you apply cocaine to the tip of your penis. Yep. Yeah, yeah. um, That's yeah. very 70s. So that in in that, so we got the 60s and and early 70s where a lot of the culture was of rebelling against authority. Yeah. And of finding real freedom and of just experimenting and self fulfillment. Yeah. And that was especially felt in the sexual realm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so around like 1970, you had all of these books being published, one of which Connor read this week. <laughs> <laughs> and we will put a link to the post. There were 12 wonderful things in in major quotes that, that Connor pulled out of that book that were just really odd. They were groovy. Yeah. yeah. Groovy. <laughs> they baby. were groovy. Groovy, yeah. baby. Some of it was good. Like, there yeah. were a few things. I was surprised at how much was in there that actually really resonates with what we're talking about now, where the conversation is starting to go in evangelical spheres. Then there was also a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah. I think the handkerchief one yeah. is my favorite still. That yeah. one that one got a <laughs> Becca yeah. when so found one, that one. That one got a section of its own. Originally I just had the good and the bad and I had to throw in a funny because the I'll weird. I'll give you just a little uh, a little sample in case you want to go read that post I haven't already. The author Reuven advises that you may want to, a man may want to just take a clean handkerchief in the morning before he's taken his morning shower and just smear it on the underside of his testicles and then wear that little handkerchief in his breast pocket as he goes about work and goes about his day. And I'm just going to say, I am never going to be able to look at a man who was a grown man in the 70s wearing a handkerchief square square ever again. I am never going to be able to see that in the same way. I'm going to be like, is that a ball square? I'm going to be like, is that... The, the idea being that it would contain pheromones, and he suggested that uh, several people who had done that reported just drowning in women afterwards. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so the 70s, yeah, the books that were coming out of this, this era in the secular realm were really about releasing people from the kind of pent-up Victorian repression that many yes. people are still in. And we had a conversation with Kristen Dumay that's coming out later. Yes, in June. Um, We've in already June. recorded it. We've already recorded coming it. out in June. Yeah, and we were talking about in her study how she just found that, you know, a lot of what these authors are writing into in the 70s were, was the miserable housewife phenomenon, yeah. right? You have these wives who have no education, no skills. They can't really get jobs in the same way as you could today for a lot of them, and they're married and they're just in blah marriages and they feel overwhelmed and tired and angry and bitter. And mm -hmm. what were all these books trying to do? They're trying to show women how they can at least, you know, enjoy life a little bit more. There was that side for the women and for the men, it was kind of like get rid of all shame and just revel and mm -hmm. enjoy. Mm -hmm. And from what I understand, Ruben's book was more on the reveling side of things. Yeah, I mean, again, it was really, it was really a mixed bag, but... <laughs> There, there was a lot in there where it, it was very clear that, especially when you look at modern sensibilities and the way that progressivism is moving, that it was it seemed very much like a pendulum swinging too far the other direction from the Victorian repression. Mm -hmm. I think it really serves to put modern progressivism in perspective too. There's this mm -hmm. idea that progressives are just trying to push us as far as possible towards complete sexual liberation and freedom and orgies and everything like that. But then you look at books like this from the 70s and you look at how the progressives would react to it and it's like that was way it's like i'm gonna line. be honest most progressives grandparents probably had much more pendulum swing thoughts than the average yeah. progressive today well yeah because what was really missing in the 90s like the, a lot of the stuff that you were critiquing from that book was really about consent again yeah. Yeah. and sexual abuse and yeah. sexual assault how that wasn't even registering no yeah. it really wasn't and that was that was the the main issue with the 70s and the 60s and and during this whole sexual liberation it's like what you were saying earlier connor is that when you just when the entire goal is to break down boundaries you break down to healthy ones too yeah. right and that's what was happening in this time yeah. i love how um he had the example too of the film producer who can get mm -hmm. any woman he wants it's like yeah. yeah yeah it's like no and i think all i have to do is promise them a movie contract and i can get any woman i want but wow your advice has really helped me figure out myself like oh dear oh yes dear. Yeah. no but I think that's that's the issue though right is this there's this whole generation who was growing up in the middle of the sexual revolution mm -hmm. who was in this culture where the Christian world was fighting back against the sexual revolution you mm -hmm. know but the culture as a whole was saying we don't need the boundaries we don't need the rules because we've been repressed for so long and there's no need for it because it's ridiculous because we're all doing it anyway why don't we just talk about it Mm -hmm. Right? And so this is, and so then if you're an evangelical Christian in the midst of that, what did the evangelical world do? They kind of tried to kind of clamp down a little bit. Yeah. Right? They're like, no, you can't do everything. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah. And so what's happening is, so there's this big sexual revolution going on. And so in the 1970s, in the late 70s, the evangelical world realized, we better start talking about sex. Exactly. And so the act of marriage, I believe, was 1976, the original book. I might I might be off by a year or two. But it was in the mid to it late 70s. It was in the mid to late 70s. Um, some other books were published in, I think, early 80s, late 70s. I think Intended for Pleasure was around that time as well. The first edition, uh, both those books have gone through multiple It's, it's a little bit complicated for us because we have the, the most later, recent editions yes. of the two, mm -hmm. so we can't, yeah, but... 
But, you know, these books were born out of that time where the world was saying, hey, let's throw caution to the wind and embrace everything. Yeah. And divorce rates, when no-fault divorce came in um, in the late 60s, early 70s in most states, Mm -hmm. divorce rates all of a sudden skyrocketed. And the church's take was, look at that. We've got women's lib and now everybody's getting divorced. Yeah, Yeah. this is an attack on marriage, which means it's an attack on our Judeo-Christian values. We need to do something because the world is falling to pieces around us. Right, and the divorce rate in the 70s was actually higher than the divorce rate today. I think we often forget that. We think that today is the worst it's ever been. The studies actually show that uh, since the 70s and the 80s, each successive cohort has had lower annual divorce rates. And the other thing is, as researchers went back and looked at the divorces that happened in the 70s, a lot of them were not just people saying, "Eh, I don't feel like getting married, or I don't feel like being married anymore. A lot of it was abused people finally being able to get out. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it opened the floodgate to allow women to leave. Yeah. And now I'm not saying all of them are like that. I'm just saying that that a lot of it, a lot of it was allowing people to get out of toxic marriages, which, which, you know. Just because no one is getting divorced doesn't mean marriages are healthy. Yeah. I just want to say divorce is not the sin. No. The reason for the divorce is the problem. And if the reason for the divorce is just simply selfishness, then yeah, that's a problem. But often the reason for the divorce is like an affair or abuse or something like that. And that's not in the same category. Yeah. And if you've had to like file for divorce because you've been sinned against so many times in your marriage or even, yeah, it's like, no, we're, we're with you, bud. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, divorce is not the sin. The reason for the divorce is due to someone's sin, but it might not be yours. Anyway, exactly. that's that's a side issue. <laughs> just <laughs> but, always like to throw that in there anytime but, we talk yeah. about divorce. Yeah. But yeah. I'm just saying, this is what was... So, so in the 1970s, the church was having a big panic. Yeah. So we had divorce, we had um, the sexual revolution, and Christians thought, we got to write books about sex yeah. and make sure that people stay married. Exactly. And so that's where the act of marriage was really born. Yeah. And, and so we're need- like, we need... People to like sex (laughs) in marriage so they don't think they have to get rid of marriage to have good sex. Exactly. But we also need to make sure everyone still knows their place. Exactly. (laughs) So these new books that were being written were very much being written from that standpoint. Yeah, there's too much women's liberation going on because women's liberation is leading to everything else. Let's make sure that women aren't liberated and let's make sure they stay married and let's make sure that the sex is not terrible enough that they don't want to leave. Yeah, right. and let's make sure we keep this idea that the women really are more to be the homemakers because yeah. Yeah. another thing is when you look throughout the when you look throughout the 20th century, whenever women were starting to get more involved in the workplace, like during wars when manufacturing jobs were opening up to women, the divorce rates started to go up because women were able to have some freedom and some independence and they were no longer as reliant. And I think that's why, you know, the act of marriage, we talk about it a lot in The Great Sex Rescue because people are still reading it today. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, and that's important to realize that this book can cause serious harm. It's yeah. not a helpful book. It is yeah. a harmful book. Yeah. It does not understand consent. And there are... For both genders, by the that's way. That's what I was going to say. It both has genders. Re- it, 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 we've talked about the Aunt Matilda story quite a bit. Yep. It also has this really weird thing where if your husband don't doesn't want sex, just go rub his penis. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> no. Men consent as well. Like, no. everyone needs consent. Let's just have this be a consensual experience. No, but, but let's realize, and what we want to talk about in this podcast as well, is that when we look at Christian sex books... We need to look at the culture they were written for mm-hmm. and ask, is it still applicable yeah. today? Because yeah. you know what? No one's reading How to Get More Out of Sex no. by PhD David Rubin. No one's and reading it. And that was it. written in the same decade 
Yep. As the act of marriage. Yeah. And yep. yet people are still recommending yep. the act of marriage. Yeah. And that's the problem, right? The act of marriage was written for a generation that did not understand consent, where the goal was to make sure, you know, women didn't have freedom. Let's be mm -hmm. honest here. Mm -hmm. That was the generation of the church that was really focusing on mm -hmm. making sure and women I knew their place you, at home. I want to read you a couple of quotes from that. Yeah. That say that. Mm -hmm. And this is all in my post from yesterday, by the way. I, I will put a link to it in the podcast description. So some great... Um, quotes, but here, here's the kind of thing that um, Tim LaHaye said about sex. He said, the very nature of the act of marriage involves feminine surrender, but to a strong-willed, choleric woman, surrender in any way is difficult. Consequently, she will often subvert her sex drive and responses to avoid surrender. Yes. So, you know, if she's a very strong-willed woman, she's not going to enjoy sex very much. Because yeah. sex is about surrender. And so you should not be a strong woman. And, he, and she, he goes on to say a woman who's very dominant and who wants to make decisions is never going to have a good sex life. Yeah. He says, as we know, in sexual intercourse, as in life, man is the actor, woman is the passive one, the receiver, the acted upon. Remember that you are a responder, except for those occasions when a wife is particularly amorous and initiates lovemaking, the husband makes the first approach. So he spends the whole book talking about this, but then he sends, says this bizarre thing near the end, which I thought was so funny. Practically every man has dreamed of having a sexually aggressive wife. Yes. So, so. It, this is the epitome <laughs> of make sure you are attractive, but not offensively so. Yes. Like, what does that mean then? Yes. He also took great pains, and he was the one who really um, formalized this in Christian literature to say that the goal is simultaneous orgasm during intercourse. Yep. And I think that was likely a response to things like the Kinsey Report, in essence, trying to normalize all forms of sex and sexuality. Yes. And also, I think, a holdover from the Victorian era where the importance of mutual climax, that was something that was mm -hmm. considered important. There were some uh, places that said that if your man was unable to climax at the same time as you, that was one of your few rights as a Victorian woman was to uh, refuse sex with him. Yep. 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 So, and I think that that's, that's, again, it's a response. Remember that he did, he was the pioneer of explaining that women can feel pleasure and should feel pleasure. Like he did a better job of this in 1976 than Emerson Eggers did in 2004. Yeah. So we do want to give him like totally. kudos for that. Like he talked about clitoral stimulation. He talked about the importance of the clitoris, about how you need to understand your wife's body, how her pleasure is up to you. Intended for Pleasure did a really good job of that as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those books, they did that well, but then they said that the only appropriate way to have an orgasm really is through intercourse and preferably simultaneous. Yeah, so it's like all this stuff we told you about how to help women orgasm, forget all of that. It's all going to be intercourse mm -hmm. all the time. Like and, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, and as and they're very he's they're both very negative towards oral sex, mm -hmm. extremely negative. And yet what we found in our survey is that And we're not the only ones. Multiple studies. Yeah. Our survey simply echoed other other studies results that mm -hmm. um, oral sex is often the easiest way for women to orgasm. There's just a lot of stuff where when our response as Christians is more reactionary than it is an actual look at what's good and what's not of what's going on. And I actually think that LaHaye likely did a better job of being more critical than we do today. But what I see a lot when I read things like The Act of Marriage or I read Christian books today about sex or marriage is that it's not necessary. It doesn't sound to me like they've actually formulated their own thoughts. It's just what is the opposition saying? And I'm going to say the opposite. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, the reason I think LaHaye is actually more critical is because he does talk about women's sexual pleasure, about the importance of mm -hmm. intimacy and mutuality. So he mm -hmm. takes a lot of the sexual liberation movement kind of catchphrases mm -hmm. and he puts them in his book. 
Yeah. But then, you know, the rest of it is men want sexually aggressive women, but if you're aggressive in any way or dominating, then obviously you're not going to have a good sex life and you're going to hate sex. It's going to be terrible. It's all going to be your fault because can't you just remember your place? Yeah. It's, it, and this is what happens is we get these contradicting statements because our, our views are based more as a reaction to the culture then they are actually based in what is good, what is true. Mm-hmm. And when we were talking about, you know, all this stuff, like the Kinsey Report, the Rubin's book, mainly Rubin's book, what we were talking about is what would have happened if the church accepted that, hey, maybe the world has got some of this right, mm-hmm. instead of simply reacted to what the world did and automatically assumed it was wrong. I'm sorry, like there's no reason after we've had the sexual liberation movement for marriage books to be written today as if they assume the woman is not going to orgasm. Yeah. There mm-hmm. is no reason for that to happen yeah. Yeah. <laughs> unless it's reactionary. And there's no reason to assume she's not going to have a sex drive. Exactly. No. Like the, the culture has had a movement where women like sex. Mm-hmm. And so why is the church so regressed in that? Mm-hmm. And I think it's because we're completely unable to take a step back and think, huh, maybe we have it wrong in some places. Because we see ourselves as against everyone, not Mm -hmm. for truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, again, my personal opinion. Mm -hmm. But I just think, like what we were saying is Connor was saying, I mean, for pity's sake, this guy has the orgasm gap in his 1970s book. Yeah, Ruben. Ruben has the the orgasm gap in the 1970s book. And like, we're the only ones talking about it now. In the Christian circles. Yeah. That's ridiculous. The secular world talked about this 50 years ago. Why are we only catching up now? And to be clear, like, he he wasn't just talking with you about, like, there is an orgasm gap. He was saying there is an orgasm gap and there isn't supposed to be because women are just as much designed for pleasure as men. This is the way God made them. This is the way God made men. But part of the problem is that we're making it all physical, but it needs to be emotional and spiritual. And I'm reading so much of these chapters and, like... I mean, this, like, this is what, this is a lot of what mm-hmm. you've been talking about. Why has this been discussed 50 years ago? Like, you are now pioneering it for the evangelicals. Well, exactly. And yeah. then also, we've seen this again with purity, culture, and consent. I mean, in my generation, the big thing was, you know, really focusing on absence-only sexual education. And what does that mean? A lot of my friends grew up in high school legitimately not knowing consent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, absence-only education does not protect children from getting abused or raped by a boyfriend. Yeah. It doesn't. But it does, you know, keep them naive from the wording so they don't know who to tell. They don't yes. know who to talk to because they're just so right. ashamed they had sex. And, and I think part of the issue is that when you write a book from a Christian perspective, you feel like I am telling you, I am imparting to you God's wisdom. Yes. And since God's wisdom doesn't change, therefore our books can't change. Mm-hmm. And an attack on your book is an attack on God's wisdom and is therefore wrong. We need to crush it or figure out a way to reconcile the book with the challenges. Yeah. Yeah. I just think that what's happened with a lot of Christian books today and even our evangelical culture as a whole is we see the women's liberation and sexual like revolution movements as bad. Yeah. And so they've stayed in Victorian times. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the comment we got so much last week with the Victorian post. Like, why does this sound like my pastor? Yeah. yeah. You know, like, yeah. why does this sound yeah. like every Christian marriage book I've ever read? And what would have happened instead if the church realized, hey, wait, there's a reason that the culture is shifting and that's a good thing. So yeah. where have we contributed to this and where can we change? Yeah. And I hope that what happens now is we look at the general culture about consent. 
mm-hmm. because it is ridiculous that churches still have like abuse survivors sign NDAs. It is ridiculous that churches still don't know that they're mandatory reporters, apparently, yeah. in a lot of areas. It is yeah. ridiculous that so much sexual abuse goes hidden and isn't talked about in churches. And it's ridiculous that we're telling teenage girls that boys will push their sexual boundaries yep. and that's normal. Exactly. So let's do this better. That's our call in the Great Sex Rescue. Thank you, Connor, for wading through... All of that uncomfortable stuff. Yep. And it was up to the nostrils at times, but I made it through. Nobody will ever look at handkerchiefs the same way again. Nope. nope. And, <laughs> and let's just acknowledge, and I, I, I just want to end with this, is that in many ways, Tim LaHaye was a groundbreaker. Totally. And he mm-hmm. did do a lot. Like, what he wrote was better than what was out there before. Far better. Yeah. You know, and he helped a lot of people. But it's 50 years later now. And we can do better. And there's no reason for books that were written for a different culture that didn't get everything right to still be being sold. Exactly. So let's be more discerning. The world has moved on and the world has gotten a lot of things right. And it's okay to notice that. Yep. LaHaye and... should have stayed in the 70s with Ruben. Yeah. There you go. All right. Okay. So <laughs> that was the main thing we're talking about today. But we wanted to also add in a false teaching of the week. Yay! Yay! False teaching of the week. And we're going to help you deconstruct it quickly. So... What I wanted to talk about this week was very short because we already explained it earlier. Mm-hmm. The false teaching is if the culture is doing it, it must be wrong. Mm-hmm. Right? We're supposed to be countercultural, right? So if the culture does it, it must be wrong. Well, the culture understood, you know, sexual abuse before the church did. <laughs> and, you know, the culture had a lot of stuff right in the sexual liberation movement. Um, just because the culture is doing it, we don't need to react in an oppositional way. I have a reader question for you now. Yep. Are you ready? Yep. So this woman grew up in purity culture and she's now married to an amazing man. They've awesome. done a lot of deconstruction. She's worked her way out. They've got a healthy sex life now, but she's really worried about her younger siblings. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she tells this one story that kind of sums up uh, what her family was like. So this is when she was still an older teenager. She says, I had recently lost about 30 pounds and I was grocery shopping at night. A man approached me and wouldn't stop harassing me. He ended up waiting for me at the doors with a group of men. I waited long enough to leave that they finally seemed to leave first. When I got outside, I realized they were still lurking. I ran to my car and locked the doors. I drove away so fast and so terrified I ended up going the wrong way down a one-way street. When I told my parents, my dad in particular was so angry with me. He immediately brought up how my style of dress had changed with my weight loss that I must have been wearing something tight showing my arms when in fact I was wearing a long coat and it was a fall season. Not that it should matter. And this is just one of many examples. This attitude is so permeated our church culture. As a runner, this sort of blame placing for bad experiences with men is very common. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she says, I have several brothers at home and I'm concerned about the approach in which my parents and church are taking when they speak about lust and porn. It's just so typical of the every man's battle mindset and I can see the damage it's doing to my brothers. I want to give my parents some resources to start having a new conversation about this, but I don't even know where to start. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I would say, similar to what we said last week, we do have our rubric and scorecard available now. Mm -hmm. And so what we did in our survey, we asked 20,000 women, what messes up your sex life? Well, we didn't actually ask that. We we asked about their sex life in their marriage. And then we asked about different evangelical teachings. And then we could see. We could could (laughs) compare people's sex outcomes based on what they believed and what they didn't. Right. And so once we knew what teachings were dangerous, and then we also read other peer-reviewed studies, we created a 12-point rubric 
rubric mm -hmm. of healthy sexuality, of the marks of healthy sexuality teachings about women. And then we applied that rubric to a bunch of our bestsellers, including The Act of Marriage and Intended for Pleasure, which we yes. talked about today. You can get that rubric. So our 12 marks of healthy sexuality, that's a good thing to talk about with people. Yeah. And when you do download it, it also comes with a cheat sheet of the results mm -hmm. of our study as well. So if people say like, okay, but like they say it's unhealthy, but I don't think this one teaching on their rubric is unhealthy. Mm -hmm. Well, you can show, well, the reason I think it's unhealthy is because if, if women hear it, they're having a worse time in their marriage. Yeah. So this is what happens. So yeah. you can get that. And we also have our scorecard, which shows how all of these different books scored on all these different measures and the nice thing about that scorecard is that not all of the books did badly yes like it shows how like on each measure some books did really well yeah and some books did really badly and so it allows you to make comparisons and there were some books that that really did score quite well and there were some books that did not every man's battle did not score very well at all i think it was second worst giving that scorecard to your pastor and the scorecard comes it's actually a google doc it's not a it's not a something that you can download anymore but you can show them the google doc because in the google doc it has all the quotes that justified why we gave this book like a two out of four on this or a zero out of four on this or a four out of four on this. Mm -hmm. So it shows the quotes that justified our scores so that, you know, it's not quite as subjective. People can, can see for themselves, which is important. But I think starting those conversations, one woman wrote to me this week that she was talking to her husband about Every Man's Battle and he was saying, oh, but I love that book. I used to run, you know, studies with all the college men about it. And it was a great book about how not to lust. And it took less seriously. And it had a really nuanced discussion on lust. Like, yeah. like he was saying that he didn't really agree with our take that it was just portraying lust as this perpetual, ever ending, like pervasive battle. Yeah. And so then the woman said, so then I said to him, but what's the title? And apparently he just thought and said, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you can't call something every man's battle. And then call yourself a nuanced uh, response yeah. to less so conversation. Yeah. That is a problem. And then I would just, I would just simply say, talk to your brothers yourself. Yeah. I was going to say when you're a teenager, like obviously your parents have a lot of influence, Mm -hmm. But other people also have a lot of influence. And if mm -hmm. the and if your parents are frankly being toxic influences for your siblings, you don't need to stand by and watch your siblings like walk into sexually predatory behavior. Mm -hmm. You don't. You don't have to sit by and watch your siblings become rape apologists. Yeah. You don't. Yeah. Um, you can say that wasn't appropriate. And it really makes me concerned that if our sister ever actually was assaulted, our parents wouldn't support her. Yeah. You know, and like, and here's why. Or you can talk about it and say like, hey, here's a blog post that you can share with your younger brothers. The blog post of is noticing lusting. Mm -hmm. Like you can talk about that kind of thing with them as well. You don't even need to have a conversation that can be awkward, but just say, hey, I saw this and didn't know if you might, if you thought your youth group might want to read through it. Yeah. Something so, like that. Yeah. So talk. So we'll share those resources again. I will put those links in the podcast description and then um, don't be afraid to talk. We just need to change the conversation. The only way we change the conversation is by speaking up. Mm-hmm. All right, so last but not least, I have some encouragement. Okay, so here is a wonderful review that was left of The Great Sex Rescue. It was doing really well. Oh, we found out this week too, I didn't share this, that we um, were on the bestseller list for, for the, the Evangelical Christian AC, Books Association. Evangelical Christian Publishers Association, Something I believe. Like yeah, for yeah. last month. So we made it. So that was awesome. Thank you so much. Yes. What's really encouraging to hear is how many counselors and pastors are reading the book and, and recommending it. And yeah. recommending it. I don't know, so, we've gotten so many um, comments yeah. and emails from people 
saying, I just got told by my counsel that I had to read your book and I read it in 24 hours. And yeah. yeah. So please, if you know a counselor, give the book to them, recommend it to them because if counselors can get a hold of it, then imagine if they, if they give it out to all of their people. Yeah. The and healing, how the people who need the healing. Mm-hmm. You know? And if you want to help us, you can also write an Amazon review mm-hmm. if you've read the book. Or uh, even just rate it. Or even just rate it. It just, it helps us tremendously. So please do that for us. It, it just takes a second or two and it really does help. So here is here is a uh, Amazon review that came in. I didn't realize until I got married just how deeply I had absorbed the pervasive evangelical teachings about sex and marriage. The obligation sex message and the teachings around lust in particular have caused so much hurt for me and my marriage. So I was thrilled to hear that Sheila, Rebecca and Joanna were writing the great sex rescue to help challenge these teachings in a big way. They explore the evangelical teachings about sex, lust and more and with clarity explain where the teachings go wrong, how they objectify women and hurt men and women in general, and how we can reframe them in a healthy way. I'm so thankful for the courage with which these authors are boldly challenging the evangelical literature, which has caused so much heartache. I love how the book focuses on encouraging us to behave more like Jesus and to evaluate our teaching by their fruits. The Great Sex Rescue minces no words in defense of the many of us who have been hurt. It replaces harmful teachings with healthy ones and ends with great hope. It helped me understand so many things about myself. It was healing and I would 100% recommend it to anyone that has grown up in the evangelical church. So that's amazing. That's kind of yeah. like what Kristen Demez said. She, Kristen Demez, when she reviewed Dumais. her book. Dumez. I always say it wrong. I'm yes. sorry. You have a French last name, for goodness I sake. know. And we even asked her how you pronounce it. Yes. Oh, well. Kristen Demez. When she said, um, if you've ever read an evangelical book about sex, you, you need to, to read, read The one. Great Sex Rescue. Yeah. <laughs> so that's wonderful. We hope it's healing. We hope it's validating for you. Thank you for listening in on the Bare Marriage Podcast. Next week, we will be doing a Start Your Engines podcast where it's more to men, but it's actually to both, really. Mm-hmm. Keith will be on. We'll be talking about some of the stuff that women have been told that men don't always know. Yes. And so that'll be fun. So join us again next week. Join us on the blog as we continue our jaunt through history and how um, the Christian church has seen sex. Remember to read and review The Great Sex Rescue and review this podcast too. And thank you. We will see you next week. Bye.